the entire idea of making stuff has always like enthralled me. Just to give you a bit of an example, the way I got introduced to Go was I was doing a lot of server programming, right? And I was doing it primarily in Java. And I didn't like it much, but I didn't really know what alternatives were out there. So I was just doing some research and I came across Go. And it turns out Go is really, really good for server programming. And I like slowly, you know, learned it through example and projects and stuff. And the one condition that I did these projects on was, yeah, they were fun. And I kept doing these and I slowly got better. I went from basic hello world to concurrency and stuff. I appreciated it for what it was. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean's developer cloud makes it simple to launch in the cloud and scale up as you grow. They have an intuitive control panel, predictable pricing, team accounts, worldwide availability with a 99.99 uptime SLA and 24-7, 365 world-class support to back that up. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, scale, store, secure, and monitor your cloud environments. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. You may have seen Ian Lance Taylor and Robert Greisemer's Next Steps for Generics post on the Go blog. And you may be wondering, are we going to get them back on the show to unpack the latest? No promises, but I can tell you this. We're working on it. Subscribe to be notified if and when that episode drops at changelog.com slash go time or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Ryer. Today, we've got a very special show. We've invited three people along who are at various points in their careers. So we have Aditya Perepa, who is a high school programmer. We've got Shaquille Kay, who has actually just started his first day internship. And we've got Benjamin Bryant, who is in his first go position. Welcome, everybody. Um, it'd be great if we could start off. Um, maybe Aditya, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to. And Sure. So I'm Aditya. I'm currently 15 years old and I'm a sophomore in high school. And uh, I have been an intern at uh, Life360 doing Android stuff. And I'm an incoming intern at uh, Tala Security doing uh, back-end and front-end security stuff. And I'm currently trying to open source at Istio. Cool. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Shaquille. Yeah. Uh, I'm Shaquille again. I'm 20 years old. I'm studying computer science and math double major. I will be in my third year this coming fall. And like Matt said, I'm uh, doing an internship right now. Today is actually my first day. I'm currently interning with the Go team to improve package.go.dev. And uh, this is my second internship. I entered at a small startup also in Go last year. Great. Thank you. Welcome to the show. And Benjamin Bryant. Hello, Ben. Hello, I'm Benjamin Bryant. And I graduated university around a year and nine months ago. And I've been in my first professional Go position for around nine months. And I'm currently 24. And when I first got invited to the show, I thought I'd be the youngest here. <laughs> 
Yes. Well, this is actually a really interesting subject, I think, because, you know, a lot of us take a lot of things for granted. We've also been doing this for many years. And, you know, it's difficult to remember what it was like in those early days. And also, the world's probably completely different. So I'm excited to hear from you what it's like and what your experiences have been. And I think also our listeners, and hopefully we'll pick up some listeners that are also kind of in your position or maybe a year behind you, a year or two behind each of you. And hopefully we can shed some light on things for them as well. So that'll be, I think, uh, very interesting. So first of all, let's find out. So why Go specifically? We're all here because we're dealing in Go in some way. Ben, what was it about Go that attracted you? Well, for me, I kind of got into Go by accident in the sense that um, when I first graduated, um, the only job I could really like find was a C-sharp position. And so when I first got that job, a friend invited me to a, the GopherCon pre-drinks in the UK. And at the time, I'd never heard of Go. And I thought GopherCon was like a conference for the fluffy animals. And so I was really looking forward to checking it out. But um, when I got there and I went downstairs and on coasters, there was like a programming language. I got to say, I was actually very disappointed. <laughs> but, um, after talking and like listening to, I guess, everyone talk about what they were doing, as in the language Go at least has a bunch of other different words attached to it that I hadn't also been, that I hadn't also interact with, interacted with in university. And that kind of made me want to at least follow up on it and try and find out what it was about. And yeah, that's how. Yeah, yeah that's, a really, that's really cool. So those are the things, you mean things like channels and Go routines and these kinds of concepts? Well, even that, but also like going to different um, Go meetups, it also like um, similar to how on GoTime it says you guys talk about microservices and Kubernetes and words like that. Those are words I'd never encountered at university, at least while I was there. And um, I definitely wasn't self-studying or researching because I don't think the word Kubernetes even existed to me until I went into, I, I mean, I have no idea how, why you would ever Google that word at all for any reason. <laughs> but yeah, but it's very ubiquitous. Like even something like Docker is something I'd never even heard about before like encountering um, this kind of community. And so, yeah. Yeah, so I wonder then, I mean, of course, because a lot of the things you talked about are, are quite new or certainly were quite new. And I suppose the computer science um, courses and things take a bit of time to catch up with that. Shaquille, when you started with your uh, internship, well, you're starting today, how did you find out about that? How did you get into doing that? Are you talking about the internship, like Google internship right now? Yes, yeah. Well, so my experience is that at college, a lot of people are really into applying for internships and getting more experience there. Like Ben said, there's a lot of things that you get out of internships in industry that you don't get in like university courses. And so at least uh, in computer science, just the majority of students, or I guess a lot of students apply for internships, especially in their sophomore and junior years. And I was just kind of going through a bunch of common places where people applied to. And Google had one of the best internship programs out there. And yeah, I just applied. The way it worked 
I actually didn't get in by just applying online. I was actually looking at a bunch of conferences in Google, and then a panel popped up that said, hey, up for a challenge? And that was the famed FUBAR challenge. And I tried my hand at it. It was really fun. I was a little disappointed there was no option to use Go as a language, but uh, I went through the challenges and then a recruiter reached out. And that's how I got started with this internship. So you knew about Go before that then? How did you find out about Go? Yeah, I found out about Go in my first internship last year when I was applying to a bunch of jobs. Some, several of them mentioned Go. And at the time, it, was, it seemed interesting, it seemed pretty hip. And I looked it up online. The website was pretty cool. Uh, I learned a little of Go through the tour of Go, but I didn't really get anything outside of that, aside from the, the basic syntax. I learned more about Go during my first internship where everything was really in Go. I got to do really cool things, building, for example, internal tools and uh, fixing bugs, learning about the software that they were building. And that's really my first experience with Go. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. It's funny that you you mentioned that the challenge you did was fun. And I think that's something that I remember being very important whenever, and still is today, whenever I'm looking at a new technology, the technologies that I find the most fun and that I have the most enjoyment with are the ones that tend to stick. Aditya, is that the same for you? I mean, you're in high school, so you, te- I mean, you don't have to be doing any programming at all, do you? No, I don't. But um, I guess the entire idea of making stuff has like always like enthralled me. So like, just to give you a bit of an example, um, the way I got introduced to Go was I was doing a lot of server programming, right? And I was doing it primarily in Java. And I didn't like it much, but I didn't really know what alternatives were out there. So I was just doing some research and I came across Go. And it turns out that Go is really, really good for server programming. And I like slowly, you know, learned it through example and projects and stuff. And the one condition that I did these projects on was like, yeah, they were fun. And I kept doing these and I slowly got better. I went from, you know, basic hello world to concurrency and stuff. I appreciated it for like what it was. And um, yeah. Mm. So what sorts of things were you building? So it would just be like, for example... I use gRPC a lot with Java, so I tried to implement that well, with 15 Go. 15-year-old well. doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I yeah, tried to implement tried. that with uh, Go. I did a, a little server, and then I used you know, the gRPC gateway, if you guys have heard of it. I tried you know, doing the transcoding from JSON to protobuf, and uh, like just little things like those that were, like in my mind, like really fun because I could transform one thing into another. Yeah, just things like that. And then recently, I learned a lot about concurrency through this project I did, this Cloudflare internship program, which was to write a ping. You could choose from C, C++, Rust, or Go. And I chose Go, and it was a great choice. Mm. Yeah, and did you say that was Cloudflare? Yeah. Yeah, I know that they they do have a lot of Go at Cloudflare. So, yeah, it's interesting we talk about the sort of fun aspect. It is about kind of playing and and creating, isn't it? But are there any things that stand out so far as the bits that you're not as interested in? Are there any things that you've noticed that you think, yeah, that kind of area isn't for me? Aditya? So all the buzz is around like AI and ML and stuff. So I've tried that. I guess I'm just not like ready for it, but I didn't really get it that much. And then 
like low level bit operations like i've tried to write c code and like i've tried to write you know low level code stuff in go and i didn't really like it that much cuz i guess i couldn't do much with it if that makes sense mm. um, i could do more with like you know building stuff like servers and stuff like that yeah so absolutely higher level concepts that that is definitely true and one of the nice things about the go team because that's where they spend all their time is down in the guts of the language and the compilers and all that stuff and they get to do all that work and then we we don't have to worry about it you know we can kind of just use all their hard work to then build real things how about you ben are there is there anything that stands out so far i mean you're already into your first position right yeah, but by standout, do you mean in terms of the language or in terms of, I guess, working with it? Yeah, sorry, I meant, is anything standout in particular, that an area that you're interested in? And then also, is there an area that you, you find not so interesting? Currently, at least on like a professional level, I haven't had any experience to at least delve into areas at like a large, as in, in practice, if that makes sense. And so like right now, I'm working within the payments area of tech, which is an area I didn't even know existed, but like there's a whole area that is all dedicated to how users pay for things. And I assume like there are possibly a whole bunch of different areas for a whole bunch of other things that I don't even know right now or haven't even touched. And I suppose there is kind of a difference between trying something out and then seeing how it's used in reality. And so I'm probably still open to just trying things out if I get the opportunity to do so. But right now there isn't really anything that I would say is too, I wouldn't look into, you know, I haven't looked into everything. Yeah, well, I think that's a great attitude actually, because especially when you're starting out, there are, you're right, things are different. The different types of problems, you know, you get to flex different muscles and things. Can you tell us a little bit about what you are working on? Uh, is, it, is it secret or can you talk a little bit about some of the tech behind it? I don't know if it's secret, which means I don't know if I can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's something that currently came out recently and since it's out, I suppose I can talk about it. It was interacting with a different payment service. This is this actually sound that interesting. I'll, no, 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 I'll pick it, it a different does. example. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it sounds like you know we're talking about interfacing with a different system, and and that often you're doing that a lot. I mean, I've definitely spent a lot of time in my career interfacing with another system. So it might be more interesting than you think. Well, as in, it was just the idea of um, there are different payment service providers. And we have, uh, we have a little service that talks to these different payment service providers. And I worked on implementing another one. Oh, which, right. That's why I didn't sound like I to grab too much attention. But I guess there was also this other project that is currently out that I had, I got to work on a tiny bit. And that was sort of um, rounding up for charity mm. um, when someone tried to pay for something. And so, so tell us that how was... that works. What is that feature, first of all? Well, what that feature is, is that whenever a customer wants to um, buy something, they now have the option to round up. I'm, I'm in the UK, so it's pennies to pounds. In the US, it's cents to dollars. And so it's just rounding up to the nearest dollar or the nearest pound. And then we have to also keep track of these donations, obviously, since if we just took someone's donations and didn't keep track of it properly, 
I guess that would be illegal. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can't just cast a float to an int and go home. Yeah, absolutely. You want to keep track of that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And so, what was the sort of tech involved? What, what sort of things did you actually do as a team to make that happen? Then. Well, the thing that I found kind of interesting around that project, at least that what I found in like, I guess building something new, is that I got to experience um, the software architecture part. Since I don't know if the other two, because I think if you guys have done interviews and stuff, there's always that software architecture interview, which you basically have to design how things are going to go and put together. But a lot of the times it doesn't show up straight away. And so being able to take part in the high level part before that, which was scoping out how we would do this, scoping out changes to the database we would do, scoping out um, how things would link together and how they would talk to other services. I actually found that kind of interesting because I never really got a chance to do that before. And I'd mainly just previously been working on, or even in like um, my previous position, it was working mainly on like doing bug fixes. And so being able to move on to the full, like designing a system, that's what I found quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, that is quite unusual because often as a junior dev, you do kind of end up getting just bug fixes. That is a very common thing to happen. So it's kind of awesome that you getting exposed to different things. Shaquille, how about you? It's just early days for you, but have you been working on anything so far or have you worked on anything interesting you could tell us about? In terms of personal projects, usually my bar for working on a personal project is pretty high. It's really something that I have to be interested in, so that I have to be invested in it, and that way I can see it through. The last thing I worked on was actually writing an interpreter in Go. I just followed, mainly followed along with the book. Um, I think it was Thorsten Ball's book, Writing an Interpreter in Go. I found that really interesting. I guess I'm on the opposite fence as Aditya here, where I kind of like low-level stuff. I want to see how things work under the hood as opposed to higher level stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so um, that's interesting. The, the Torsten Ball, his book about, he wrote a book of how to write an, an interpreter in Go, and there's a follow-up for compilers. And I always think, for me, the best way to learn something is actually by building something. So do you find that that is a good way for you also to learn? Because um, since you're building a, and implementing a real thing, an interpreter in this case. Absolutely. A lot of times I read up on things and that gives me a higher level understanding of how things work in a way, mm -hmm. but I don't really understand how they fit in together until you start going down and actually doing the things yourself. So at first I was just browsing through the interpreter book and going, huh, interesting, cool, cool. And then I'd say, I'm not really learning much out of this. So then I started getting my hands dirty and actually following along with the book, writing the code, and then trying to write the code myself without looking at the book and see how differently the implementation would come out. And that's when I began to understand really, okay, so that's how an interpreter works. Yeah, I think that's great. That's always my kind of one piece of advice when people ask, how do I learn more is to build real things. And Aditya, it sounds like that's similar to your approach too. You spent a lot of time building real things prototypes or actual things, right? Yeah. You want me to talk about some of the stuff, projects I've built? Yeah, please, yeah. Okay, so um, 
well, they're not all in Go, but they're still they're pretty cool. So one of them was a it was an fingerprint based attendance system uh, for my school. So like currently, students walk in and then they're all they all sit down and then if one teacher messes up, they have to redo the entire thing. And so I thought, you know, teachers shouldn't have to be counting the number of students and saying here, 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 present, present, present. So I was, uh, I was thinking, everybody has a fingerprint. So fingerprint sensors are like $5 now. And if you connect it to a Raspberry Pi uh, and connect that to a server and a database, you have an attendance system. So I built that. I built a prototype and everything worked, but then COVID-19 happened. So then no school. But um, there's two sides to that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, currently I'm working on this um, order management system uh, for like grocery stores to help with um, COVID-19. So, uh, you know, you fill out a sort of uh, on the website, you fill out the items you want to get. And then when you send that, um, it sends an order to the back end and the uh, back end sends an email. And then there's also an interface for the store to view the orders and stuff. And then mark orders is completed and stuff. And the back end is completely in Go. Lambda, some pretty cool technology there, but yeah. Yeah, no, they sound great. You know, that thing, the Raspberry Pi and the fingerprint thing, you know, whenever tech kind of crosses into the real world, I think things can get very interesting, can't they? Um, I mean, yeah, that you're dealing with real, obviously we're not allowed to touch things now, but so that's ruined that. But, but yeah, okay, brilliant. What was like the challenges around doing that? What was the hard bits when you were building those projects? So I guess for the fingerprint stuff, I had to go through the bureaucratic hassle of talking with the district like technology representative person. And then I had to get a, an affirmative from him. Only then I could like start collecting fingerprints because like you could extract these fingerprints and like it's, and we're all minors. So it's sort of an invasion of privacy if it's not dealt with right. So, uh, yeah, we had to uh, deal with that and, um, that was sort of the bad part about it. Like I said before, I don't really like to interact with really low-level stuff, but this fingerprint sensor didn't have great interfaces, so I had to do some bit twiddling and stuff, and that wasn't fun. But uh, yeah, you do what you have to do. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Changelog News is the best way to keep up with the ever-changing world of software. We track, log, and contextualize the coolest projects, the best practices, and the biggest stories each and every week. Make changelog.com your daily destination or hit the snooze button and subscribe to our weekly newsletter that hits inboxes on Sunday mornings. Join more than 15,000 enthusiastic readers. It'll cost you exactly $0. And you can subscribe right now at changelog.com slash weekly. It's funny that the politics almost in that was the challenging bit. And I wonder, is there anything that stands out as kind of a intimidating or concerning? Is there anything that stands out like that when you look at tech? Or does it all just kind of new and exciting and you don't really, uh, you're not too worried about anything? 
I will try not to think about that because if I think about all the overhead that I'm going to get, I probably won't do the project. Um, so I try not to think about that stuff. Mm. What about you, Ben? For me, I'd say what I find to be a challenge sometimes is, I don't know if this is a word, but self-propellance mm. in, in the sense that I don't know if everyone else feels this as well, but sometimes when you kind of need to teach yourself something, or let's just take a random example. Like if I needed to like teach myself Docker, you go to the website and then you have to, well, read. Like um, you do need to read. You, I mean, I guess you could watch some videos as well, but you kind of need to get your hands dirty and you need to kind of start working on stuff. And I find that sometimes without like some kind of catalyst, it can be difficult to want to continue with a project or to see it through to the end. Like um, one of my first Go projects that I worked on as a sort of joke is that I wanted to uh, model the life of a million gophers, as in the animal in Go, just as a way to learn how to use Go, because I'd never really used it before. And if I was just doing that on my own, like if I was just trying to learn Go on my own, I don't know if I could have pushed through and like gone and tried to learn for everything. But because I had um, volunteered to try and um, give a talk about me learning Go, that had a fake deadline involved in it. And having like a deadline there was like, okay, I need to keep moving myself forward. And so I think that could be something that maybe people that you could kind of use, like if you can somehow find a way to maybe just impose a restriction onto what you're working on, it might drive you to see, to work for it, essentially. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. There's another thing that happens as well, which is we tend to want everything to be perfect. So when you're building something, you just want it to be the best it can be. And sometimes a deadline helps with that too, because it forces you to prioritize. You mentioned giving a talk. I saw that talk because you did it at the London Gophers, right? Yes. Yeah, and it was great. And I remember the audience, I remember they loved it. And you were kind of talking as well about your story of learning this and this way that you went about that. So did that talk, it was, it was a catalyst for you to actually do and, and deliver. But was there also value in that, in giving the talk as well? And was that a kind of, kind of scary thing? to be doing? I found at least doing a talk kind of helped me get more engaged with the community since after the fact, since people had seen the talk and like they were willing to, I guess it felt easier walking up to people and talking to them, which could help with at least unlocking new language or unlocking different places that you might try and think about applying or to go to. And yeah, I guess it, it just kind of helped with uh, me wanting to program something because I knew that at the end of it, I would be presenting it. And so that kind of drove me to at least want to do a goodish job at, on what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So, and Shaquille, how about you? With, uh, is there anything that stands out as a kind of intimidating or worrying uh, area in particular of, as, as you look forward in, in your career? As I look forward in my career, I would say the most concerning right now is graduating in a recession. Mm. Um, I think I hear a lot of stories from 
back in 2008 or even back in 1980s from when a lot of when it was very difficult to find jobs and when a lot of people are losing their jobs and i think it's also already kind of happening right now where a lot of companies are laying off and a lot of companies are also going under i know that in the future tech industry will still keep growing and even right now a lot of the big companies like facebook and amazon are still aggressively hiring but it's still scary to think that a lot of right now it's going to become harder to find a lot of to find jobs and you know graduate in a job um, position that you might want to do yeah i think a lot of people share those kinds of concerns i mean you know tech isn't immune of course but in some ways i mean like look at remote work that's kind of an example of Uh, something that I think the world has changed with remote work now. There used to be the, the prevailing attitude was that, you know, remote work wasn't right for every company and often that people were very used to being co-located. And since we've now all forced to be kind of working remotely, people have seen yeah, this actually works and there can be some benefits to it as well. So yeah, I, I think Shaquille, you're right. There's going to be things changing and hopefully there is still enough opportunity within that to be kind of getting stuck into. So Shaquille, have you done any uh, talks like meetups or anything, or would you consider something like that? I have not given a talk, uh, if that's what the question is, but I've attended some meetups. Uh, I've gone to a couple Austin Go meetups and that was pretty interesting. This was around last year, last summer at a time as a freshman student and I don't really didn't really understand a lot of what people were saying and a lot of the trade-offs they were discussing were just not things that I like run into at all yet, at least in my career. And now I think I have a little more understanding of them just from lurking around in Reddit threads and hacker news um, posts, which are pretty interesting by the way. But yeah. I'd say those meetups, a lot of those meetups can be intimidating at times because if you come in and you don't know anyone, then it's pretty hard to interact with people. And also when people start talking about what they're doing and all these really cool tech stuff and you don't really understand what they are, it's just kind of hard to, hmm, I see. Or just keep asking, can you tell me more about that? Because then you're going to take up all their night. <laughs> Is that what you did though? You would, would you ask people questions? And I'd, I'd ask them to a certain level, like, mm. like maybe four or five questions in, and then I'd stop somewhere there because I'm sure they want to talk to other people more at that point. Mm -hmm. From my experience, I think people like talking about stuff that they're interested in. And so, um, because when I went to these meetups as well, I, um, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't know what Docker was or anything like that. And so similar to you, like a lot of this stuff went over my head, but I'd still go to like pub afterwards and I'd still like ask questions. And especially if you can like somehow find someone who's working on something, if you simply ask why a couple of times or even just ask like some questions for them, like they will continue talking for probably longer than you'd want them to anyway, <laughs> because they're just that interested in like what they're doing. Yeah, so I wouldn't like worry too much about that. I also found that meetups were like a great place to well, like unlocking language. Like so much stuff that's mentioned there is just 
stuff that's kind of internally known and is, I would say, very difficult to find entirely on your own. Mm. But at least if you go there, you can like pick up the words you need to Google afterwards. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Do you find the same, Aditya? Do you find yourself in these communities and there are concepts and things that you don't seem familiar with and then gives you something to go and look into? Oh, yeah. So I can talk a little bit about my open source, like trying to open source, because like I kind of knew nothing about, yeah, like like Benjamin, I knew nothing about Kubernetes, Docker, any of this stuff, but I found out the best way I learned was through like experience. So I decided to pick a repository on, you know, GitHub and go and just like jump into it. So my first attempt was um, gRPC and I knew nothing about a lot of things, but I found that like I couldn't do much there. So I decided to go to something else. And I found that like in Istio where I'm currently contributing, where I found like sort of my niche, everybody there is super nice and supportive. And I'm sort of like, I sort of like bug people on Slack about certain things and they're so nice about it and they always answer. Yeah, just learning through people and experience and like reading stuff. And like, that's how I sort of get myself to where I want to be. Mm. That's interesting you say bug people. And it is a shame that it feels like that. But I think that is kind of a, there is a bit of that, that you have to sort of be a little bit like that. In fact, Aditya, you reached out to me to kind of pitch coming on a podcast, for example. So it's that sort of very proactive, quite a bold step. And, you know, there's, it's not without risk. Those kinds of things can be quite embarrassing if they don't work. So it's a risk you take. Um, but I think it is, if you can, it's a with, uh, risk worth taking. I mean, now we get to meet you and hang out on the podcast. So uh, in that case, it works. So that's great. Um, are there other people your age and in your school that are doing the same kinds of things in tech as you? Or are you sort of unusual there? So I don't want to be called unusual. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, So I have a friend. He's sort of the opposite of me. He loves doing a uh, little bit twiddling and uh, he loves doing low-level stuff. He's super smart. But um, yeah, like he's the like only other sort of friend I know who actually like super interested in this stuff but it's not to say like i was just lucky to have found something that i really love this early Mm -hmm. um people will find like their things eventually you know it's no Mm -hmm. rush yeah Yeah. (laughs) very wise words annoyingly you're right and i mean unusual in the best sense you know i think you do sometimes uh, and i don't know what it's like now but i know that when i was uh, because i was kind of a programmer at school and it was strange to be doing that. And, you know, sometimes you kind of uh, can get a bit outcast and things like this can happen too. But what's the technical kind of learning there like? Do you have like a computer science class? And what's that like? Okay, so um, so I go to school in like the Bay Area. So the Bay Area's high schools and stuff are like notoriously known for like being really competitive. And yeah, so we have a computer science course, but it's only available to, to like 11th and 12th graders. I actually met the computer science teacher at my school. His name is uh, Dr. Brucker, and I met him through a math class. I was taking geometry in ninth grade, and he taught that class for like one period. And uh, I met him through there. He saw I was interested in this stuff, and he sort of took me under his wing and like taught me a lot of that stuff. He's sort of like a guru at Java and stuff. And um, he really helped me throughout that process. But like... 
I'm really lucky to have that sort of person. A lot of people don't. And uh, I think like having a mentor is sort of what stops a lot of younger people from like going out there and doing things. We do have a curriculum. It's sort of like algorithmically oriented, not really um, application oriented, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. So speaking of mentors then, Shaquille, have you experienced that where you've had some mentorship from somebody? So I'm going to start in high school. I'm actually an international student. I think I forgot to mention that I'm actually just here on an F1 visa. I'm from the Philippines. And back in high school, I started learning programming by myself using online curriculum from Stanford. And at the time, I really wanted to expand more in it, but I really couldn't find anyone at my school who either enjoyed programming as much as I did. Well, there were people in robotics, but it's a little different because they're, they're programming robots to move and do stuff. And I was more interested in using programming to solve problems. Yeah, so we didn't really have a good CS curriculum or program at my school. And it was my understanding that a lot of other schools as well didn't have that unless they're, I guess, top of the top schools, right? So I'd say the closest I have to a mentor is really the manager I had last from last year, from my internship last year, we're still in touch now. We, from time to time, we check up on each other, just giving us updates on like what's happening in my life, but what I'm learning, books is reading, and some suggestions for things to dive into. But yeah, a lot of it is really just me talking to my friends about cool tech and then them sharing what they found. And then we sort of dive into those together, or go into discussions about those together. Yeah, that's really great that you were able to find uh, somebody like that, I think. And it's also funny, I noticed this theme of, of kind of being really hobbyist that then we turn into a job. And that's definitely my route was that I was, I just couldn't believe I could make the computer do things. That, that was just a, a kind of amazing feeling that never went away. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Ben, did you ever have anybody mentoring you in this way? Or I feel if I say no, people who did might get offended, but I don't know. <laughs> I see. But, so less formal, but a lot of, you've, obviously there's been people that have helped along the way, of course. Yeah. As in like, I've talked to many people about my issues um, through life, <laughs> not just about programming issues, just issues in general. What kind of milk do I want to drink? That kind of stuff. But, yeah. um, what sort of milk did you land on in the end? I, I don't drink milk anymore. There you go then. Oh, well, it's a sad tale. Although I think whole's, <laughs> I think whole's good because it has fat in it and that's good for muscle growth. Anyway. Um, <laughs> There's oat milk. Other, other kinds of milk are available. Oh, do you mean like milk that doesn't come from cows? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I guess that does make sense. I guess programming's a bit like milk. <laughs> Programming is a bit save like... It for the, save it for the after party. <laughs> <laughs> we know how to party on this show. I was going to say, save it for our sister podcast, Milk Time. Okay. It's not a real podcast, so don't, don't look it up. I guess to answer your question, because I noticed you guys were talking about how you guys were sort of hobbyists and kind of went into it, mm. but my route was slightly different, because although I did do computer science at university... I don't think I opened the terminal on my computer. And um, worst of all, I was using Windows computer um, instead of like Linux or Mac. 
or something like that, which I guess all the all the hackers use. I said hacker programmer. Like I don't open a terminal till I think after my first class at university. Mm-hmm. So like I came into programming, I guess a tiny bit late. And I also remember like avoiding install because it was Java at university. And I remember avoiding installing it on my computer because I found it too complicated to figure out how to install and then run it. And so I just used the uh, university's computers to do my coursework. But then eventually when um, I think I needed to actually do work at home, I kind of had to sit down and figure out, okay, how do I install Java so I can actually get to work? So a slightly different path. Was that something that attracted you about Go then? The fact that actually it's quite easy to install and to build things. You don't have a <laughs> JVM, right? You don't have uh, these virtual machines. It is a simpler thing, is it not? Well, I mean, at that point, I had been in university for four years. So I kind of got over my fear of installing programming languages. <laughs> I guess, I mean, some people at university did actually avoid using installing programming languages all the way to the final year. I unfortunately got over that in the first year. But yeah, it's actually pretty easy to install Go. But I think at the time when I started using Go, there was this Go path thing. That wasn't easy. That was... <laughs> like, Go mod made it slightly easier, but like, Go path came out of the blue, and I was like, I've messed up. Code modules were the biggest struggle I had last year. I remember just being super frustrated trying to download dependencies for Go modules and not finding a definitive resource out there that tells me, oh, this is how you start a Go module. This is how you use it. But now with the official support, it's a lot easier. And pretty much every new tutorial out there can tell you how Go modules work. But back last year, it was I had to ask people a lot of questions to really understand how do you use scope modules? Yeah, me too, mate. And actually, it's the transition from GoPath. GoPath in the beginning was, in a way, kind of this minimalist idea, which is just there's one path and your code goes in there and it follows the folder structure that also follows the GoGet kind of structure. And for a while, it, it really kind of was quite simple. And then it, it didn't quite scale, of course. And so modules comes along and if we have to transition. And so that's why, yeah, all the articles that just assume GoPath, it's just like set up your GoPath um, and just link off to something suddenly isn't as simple as that. And I think that that happens sometimes, isn't it? In communities and, you know, when when the tech evolves and things start to change, it does create some tension. Um, what about you, Aditya? Was modules a tricky thing or did it make sense to you? Coming from a very JVM-heavy um, ecosystem, I, it baffled me, but I sort of got used to it, like, through exposure. Mm. Yeah, GoPath was sort of like, I got used to it and then Go modules came out and then it streamlined everything else. And now I just do Go mod in it and I'm done. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it does keep getting better. The Go modules uh, implementation really does keep getting better and better. Um, and I think in the next release, like we don't need to be doing Go mod tidy and things. I think it's sort of self-healing almost tidies up after itself. We'll probably end up doing an episode on that. What other features of Go then do we like? This is a Go podcast. What's your favorite Go feature, Aditya? I really like select and choosing from channels. It's just like, I don't like saying stuff like code is beautiful, but that is beautiful. Like I just have multiple channels. Like, okay, so when I was writing the pinger for a Cloudflare internship, uh, I had multiple channels. Like I had an interval time ticker. I had the... um. I would send the packet on a different Go routine and then would send the packet through the channel. 
And I could just select from all those options that I could just like handle them in my own way. It just made things so easy as opposed to Java where you'd have a thread pool and then you would do all this stuff. And, you know, another thing I like about Go is like you don't have to do factory factory like you would do in Java. Um, it's mm -hmm. just really nice and really simple. Mm, I think that's a great choice for concurrent programming, which is usually difficult to keep in sync and difficult to communicate and share memory and all this stuff. And yeah, that, I agree that select block, uh, only one of these cases can run at a time. So it gives you that synchronization point. Uh, yeah, it can conceptually simplify things a lot. I think it's, that's a great choice. And what about you, Ben? What's your favorite bit of go, mate? I would say the standardization of style. I think that's what it's called um, in the sense that I've been using Ruby at my job as well. And that definitely has a lot more ways to do a lot of the same thing. And that can make it difficult to track things down. But um, having everything kind of just look the same and feel the same, I kind of appreciate that. It also kind of avoids the situation where you kind of have to figure out what team's code style is going to be and stuff like that. I remember like there was a university project I had to do and there was a heated debate about what kind of how many spaces we were going to do <laughs> and if we'd like even dare to use tabs like um and that was that was just one small part of the kind of code style we were trying to get going i just like how it's just everything kind of already has a style like it's yeah. it's a small thing but it's very useful no, I completely agree. The Go project shipped in the very beginning with the GoFump tool, which did all the formatting. And, you know, for if you think about like working on open source projects or actually collaborating in any way, it's quite important, those things, especially when we're dealing with pull requests and things. You know, you don't want to see pull requests with just lots of formatting noise in there. What's nice is as long as everybody GoFumps their code before they push it, you really only see what's actually meaningful that's changed. You don't see, oh, this changed, but also look, my editors put all, all these tabs as well, so there's just red and green everywhere. So yeah, I think that is actually a, um, a pretty good choice as well, mate. Uh, Shaquille, well, have you got a particular favorite language feature? For me, it's go routines and channels and sort of the idiomatic way to use concurrency in Go. I think the patterns that they kind of want you to use for concurrency is very good in terms of how you can avoid a lot of the common pitfalls with parallel programming. In particular, um, I took a class, I just finished a class last semester on parallel programming and different patterns. And I find myself translating a lot of those patterns into how they would work in Go and thinking, hmm, that gives me a better model of how this pattern really works. Um, and kind of contrasting it with Go, I can see why Go channels, like why people encourage you to use channels rather than, for example, doing new text everywhere. Yeah, I think that's a great choice. It is the thing that attracts a lot of people to Go is the way that it handles concurrency and, and treats it as a first class concern. In fact, you know, it was designed for modern architectures. If you think about C, it's kind of a, an older language, I think designed back in the 70s when machines were just single processor. It wasn't really networked in the same way. And 
modern systems are very networked and you know multi-core, lots of processing speed and and concurrent processing capabilities and things. And so the language kind of knew that when they designed it. And so you do get that into the language. So I think, again, great choice. We deserve a better internet and the Brave team has the recipe for bringing it to us. Start with Google Chrome, keep the extension, the dev tools and the rendering engine that make Chrome great. Rip out the Google bits, we don't need them. Mix in ad and tracker blocking by default, quick access to the Tor network for true private browsing and an opt-in reward system so you can get paid to view privacy respecting ads. Then turn around and use those rewards to support your favorite web creators like us. Download Brave today using the link in the show notes and give tipping a try on changelog.com. Do you have any questions that uh, we might be able to uh, answer? And by we, I mean me and also anyone else on the panel that might have an answer. Yeah, I have a sort of different question now. <laughs> Go for um, it. Who doesn't like a surprise? Is this going to be about milk? No. Okay. But it ages like it. No, that's, that's a terrible joke. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're all on like different levels in the sense that Aditya, which hopefully I pronounced correctly, I could be assuming for you, but like eventually be heading towards university potentially, right? And Shaquille, you've currently completed university and you're like an intern. At, well, close to completing university, you're an intern. And then after this, you're most likely going to graduate and get a position. I'm actually halfway through university. Oh, well, you're almost there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long way off. It's uh, not that long, trust me. <laughs> and I've sort of graduated and I like I'm in my first go position and eventually I will most likely look for like maybe a new place to go, like maybe like trying to go towards a more senior level or so on and so forth. And so I guess my question is, because we've kind of all been like, I guess working towards something, right? I guess once you get past my stage, you're sort of you kind of have to decide for yourself where you want to go, right? And how you want to choose how to learn or like or to keep learning or something like that so i guess my question for you matt is what makes you want to keep going yeah that is a really good question which is code for difficult to answer apologies sorry i think it's just the love of doing it i think it is that uh, ultimately and and to be honest i've done jobs like i've taken jobs before for the money. Like I took a job, I thought it's not going to be the best job, but it's really well paid. So, and it's a step up and all this. Uh, I always regretted those decisions. I was never happy. You very quickly get used to the money, whatever money you make, you very quickly get used to it and it stops being the incentive that it seems like it's going to be. And so therefore it has to be the love of the thing, the belief in the project that, that keeps you going. And you, essentially, as you've all kind of given examples of, when you see a real problem that you want to solve, that that's the drive, I think, that keeps you. But yeah, I think everyone also is going to have a different path. I don't think there is, I mean, you're right, Ben, like initially 
you've got maybe high school and you, a lot of that early stuff is kind of laid out in some ways. There's lots of room to do other things. I don't know that most people um, go on a podcast when they're 15, for example. So there's lots of ways you can break the rules or bend the rules and do different and more interesting things and, uh, and take different paths. But yeah, I think there isn't a path. I don't like the idea, actually, that there is a single path that you follow to progress. If, if there is one, like some companies do it, they have explicit little uh, programs or big programs, which you can f- flow through. But I feel like it has to be so tailor-made to you for it to be valuable to you that, that those things may or may not fit very well. And I've never found anything like that really work, but I know that lots of, if there's benefit to it, then that's, that's what you do. But yeah, I would say there isn't really a right or wrong path that you go through it has to be a kind of thing that you find your own way on. I wouldn't recommend necessarily the way I have gone through my career. It's it's something that's kind of worked to an extent, I guess. And it's been somewhat random when I look back on it. When I look back on it, it's somewhat random, it feels. But I didn't have like a big plan of a five-year plan, for example. I never really did that. I was much more agile about it, if you like. I was much more more immediate and looking at that, that sort of approach. I know a lot of people do do that. They have the big plan and, and stick to it and it really works for them. So that's it. I think there isn't an answer. There isn't a route that everyone should take. You have to find your own path. How does that sound? Sounds good. Oh, good. On that note, we did discuss a lot in this podcast about hobbies and doing things that are interesting. And so all the times I think... I look back to when I first learned programming or when I first learned a new language, that sort of childlike curiosity and excitement you get out of doing something simple. And then slowly as you start to learn more languages, programs, and patterns, that sort of childlike wonder still um, seems to be more muted and dies down a little because a lot of these are things that are kind of you've seen before in just a different form. So I'm curious, Matt, do you still have that sense of childlike wonder and curiosity when you dive into different things now? And if so, like, how do you keep that alive throughout the years? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, the answer is yes, I do still have it. And what happened to me was the things that I learned and that just became kind of tools that I could use, they they would start in the beginning, they were exciting things I didn't understand. And then once you understand them and they do somewhat become mundane, actually they just become tools. There's always more things. And that's the nice message I can tell you from the future. If you imagine I'm in the future, I can't tell you any lottery numbers. It's against the time traveling laws, but yeah, sorry, but I can tell you that there's always stuff, uh, new things to learn, things that are hard and, and therefore enough to get stuck into. And, you know, there's, there's lots of other languages to learn. But really, once you've kind of along the way collected up these tools that you can use, the exciting thing then is mixing all that knowledge in new ways. Somebody I read said that creativity actually is just making connections that other people haven't made yet between things that already exist. And so in, in that sense, you know, you might know about a messaging system and you might know HTML. So you could build a web front end. Uh, you know, you might have these various tools, 
which in their own right, if you've done them for long enough, become not a very exciting or cool, don't have that sparkle to them. But then you can use them to mix them together in new ways that other people haven't done before and tackle problems and even tackle problems that have already been solved in different ways, in new ways. So yeah, it never runs dry. There's always more to learn. And I think that's kind of the good news I can give you from the future. That's very wise. Sounds good. Um, sounds like there's a lot to look forward to. Yes, yes, there is. There definitely is. Any other questions? Yes. This is sort of a... Okay. So last year at my uh, Life360 internship, I was like, there was this one senior engineer who would um, sort of sit perpendicular to me, right? And uh, we were both working on the same sort of area, so he knew a lot of stuff. And I would sort of go to him like a lot for help. And after a certain point, like I felt like I was being intrusive. So like I stopped going to help that for help that much. And like that sort of slowed me down. I'm just wondering how much time should be spent trying to figure out a problem before bugging a senior dev with that problem? <laughs> I think that is a good question, which again, isn't going to have a very simple answer because it'll just depend so much on the situation. But the fact that you're even thinking like that, I think is, is the good thing. Cause it, you know, it's about, you know, you do have the respect for other people's time and things and that's important. But yeah, I think it, it just depends on the situation and having that as a sort of open conversation and asking people about it. I think that's the way to do it. Do you mind if I come and bug you? Would you prefer I just did it at certain times or what works for you? You know, those kinds of things. You, I think you'll find most of the time people like helping. Some, some cultures are, uh, there's a lot of time pressure, which can spoil these kinds of things. So, you know, in no situation, because of course, if somebody's busy and, they're, and you know, their neck's on the line, if that's how they're feeling, then of course, you know, they're going to just be focused on their work and they're not going to have time for other things and might feel like you're distracting them from that mission that they have. I think the culture is what's wrong there. You know, it's not a very healthy culture. Um, it does happen sometimes. And I think having that open dialogue is, is how you'll find out. Someone will say, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to get this thing done for Friday. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to knuckle down and get on with it. But I think generally, most of the time, assuming a nice, somewhat more relaxed culture, one where you know, people aren't under too much pressure, I think people would be more than happy to help. And as Ben said, sometimes then you have the opposite problem. You want them to shut up. I did want to um, add to that question as well, since I actually was in a similar situation um, where I worked. And it was kind of tricky because there were two people, to, to, two people next to me. One to the right, you could basically bug any time and they were fine with it, and one to the left, you couldn't. And so I originally was using the philosophy for the right person on the left person, and then it came off in a performance review. <laughs> so, and what's kind of important is you can sort of be proactive in, I guess, just figuring out how people like to be worked with. And similar to what Matt said, simply just asking or setting up like a little one-to-one -one meeting and just asking, how would you like to be interacted with? Or like, even from like from your perspective, like I'm new here, I have quite quite a few questions to ask. Like, how often are you okay with me just seeing how they, how they want to do? And then it's kind of on them to set how they like to be worked with, and at least then you know. 
Yeah, that I think but, um, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Keep revisiting that conversation as well because it's it's often people won't know the answer and they might say, "Oh yeah, interrupt me any time," and then once you've done it for a few weeks, then they might know more about that. That that happens all the time too, and so everyone's always learning. So yeah, having that revisit it occasionally and say. Yeah, so, you know, and I actually quite like it when this is done in a somewhat informal setting. I mean, I don't know what that's going to be like now, and we're going to be a lot more remote, but, you know, I would go, like, go for a coffee with somebody or something, and at those times kind of chat about things like that. I think that's right, that it will change over time, and it'll be different at different times, and so sort of acknowledging that can only help, really, and then it doesn't become a kind of problem. It never boils up into, you know, it certainly shouldn't boil up into a a performance review, but you know, it can happen, I guess. So yeah, definitely talking, I think is just the key thing, talking to people and uh, being personable. And actually I can tell you, I haven't, I mean, Ben, I know you a bit more because we're both in London. How many times have you spoken at the London Gophers meetup, by the way? Only twice. Okay. So, I was at, but I've been to both of your talks, in fact. Yeah. So I do feel like I know you better. Um, but I can tell you're all personable. And I think you, you know, you're thinking about these things in the right way. So, yeah, I think you're going to do great. Don't worry too much, you know. Uh, but yeah, having that conversation with people is going to be important. It's time for Unpopular Opinions. Okay, does anyone have an unpopular opinion? Yes. It's sort of similar. So I listen to Go Time a lot. So it's sort of similar to one of the, when the Nats.io dude came on. I think that REST is obsolete, and I'm not sure why we're still using it. I know there's legacy involved, and it's easy, but there's much better protocols out there that we could use that are faster, just better, like have an IDL. Like, this is just my opinion, but this is actually sort of a question too. For client-facing, I guess, apps where like you have to integrate with lots of third parties, um, do you always have to use REST? Because like I was using uh, gRPC for that a lot, and it sort of worked. And I wish we could use gRPC for everything. What do you guys think? Ben, what do you think? gRPC is a new word for me right now, but I'll definitely look it up after this. <laughs> There we go. We learned. Shaquille, have you encountered gRPC? I have. I was researching on whether to use REST or gRPC for a server I was going to make. And the consensus, no, not consensus, the idea I seem to get from it is that gRPC is really fast. And I actually don't recall the exact arguments, but I seem to come up, it seemed to be that REST still has a place today. And it works for simple applications. Yeah, so it's funny. I think one of the big things is uh, browser support. And you can do gRPC in the browser. It's not as easy uh, as RESTful services. And I think, yeah, the legacy, editor that you talk about of uh, the fact that we've sort of had REST for a long time, that is probably what carries it. If you sat down and looked at them both and you know just did a sort of analysis and a comparison... GRPC is a kind of, it's a binary protocol. You use protobuf to describe the messages 
Um, on proto, but it's just a kind of, essentially you describe a struct, basically, if you think of it in Go terms. But one of the cool things it has is you put a number for each field. And once you've used that number, you never will change it. You can delete them and not use it, but you can't ever reuse that number. And so that sort of future-proofs API design. Old messages will still work in the future. There's a few other benefits and things. It's a binary protocol where REST tends to be a text whether it's JSON or something. And yeah, you can also get some very fast serialization down at gRPC. And so typically I've seen people use it in systems. If you've got microservices and things, they'll use something like gRPC and sometimes protobuf on its own for the messaging there. But when it comes to building a web experience, there isn't yet the bit that reaches into the browser enough, I think, for that adoption to happen but there's no reason why that won't happen. So yeah, we could well see something like gRPC or there are other kind of binary protocols. Or we could easily see that take over and become the one. But yeah, you'll notice if you go to Stripe API or Amazon Web Services, these kinds of APIs, they tend to be still following the patterns of the web. You know, REST APIs are essentially follow the web's kind of design as well. Things, rules like you've got, you know, get requests will will get information, they'll never change information. A get request doesn't have a body, so you, in a sense, you can't really send data with a get request versus a post request where you actually post a body, you know, with some data. I think deletes also don't have a body. Um, and REST kind of fits that pattern of how the web was originally designed. That's why it's about like, getting documents, putting documents, uh, you know, making updates to resources. And it's, you know, done like that. RPC things, which gRPC is one, of course, uh, not of course, but it is. It's, it's more about thinking of like, there's actually a, a procedure or a, a function I'm going to call over there. And that's a, a, a very different way of thinking about things. And yeah, so I think it's interesting. We are still, I think, web protocols and the rest and things still is the by far the biggest player but it doesn't mean it's better technically it, it is probably easier to interface with so that's why it might be winning one last thing when i see uh, microservices that use like rest to communicate it sort of like baffles me because let's say a company wants to move to like a sort of faster rpc model one of the reasons they might not do that is you will have to migrate all of your microservices from REST to gRPC, and there's going to be so many things that could go wrong there. But there are services that I'm not sure, like maybe I'm just not in the loop, but I'm not sure why more entities aren't utilizing it. There's stuff like Envoy and gRPC Gateway, which transcribes REST into JSON and JSON into REST. And that actually, um, you know, it supports REST while you're getting a taste of like what gRPC is. So like, that's an interesting topic that, you know, adoption, like players and adoption. So like Envoy and gRPC gateway, super useful when um, dealing with that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's uh, just a case of kind of inertia. Here's the thing. If you get to a project and you're responsible for choosing which technology you're going to use, you could sit down and just compare the two technologies and very reasonably come to the conclusion that, well, gRPC is the one. But if that team has never heard of gRPC before, 
then you know that is quite a big thing. That's a quite a big consideration that you have to make when choosing tech. You know, so yes, that you might compare the tech and land on on an obvious answer, but what about what do people? If you, if you expect them to consume your API, are you going to provide a client that they can use? And if you are, then you have to kind of provide a client for every kind of platform that you want to support. Like you'd need to do an iOS one, you'd need to do one for JavaScript, you'd probably need to do a Go one. And maybe that's fine. Maybe that's what you're going to do. And actually a lot of the Google services do that. When you write code for App Engine and you use the Google Cloud APIs, they are all gRPC. The G in gRPC is short for Google, so that's probably why. But if instead you want to just provide a surface and let people write to that surface, then it's what the world wants. It's what the customers are going to be happy consuming plays a big part in that. And I think that's why we still do see that that technology, REST technologies and just JSON HTTP, even though, yeah, you could easily argue. I mean, it's a text protocol. You know, you have to encode and decode JSON, which is can be slow compared to other technologies. And the other thing is, you might just not need the speed of gRPC. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's very common to, as you learn about the tech, it, it's easy to sort of look at and optimize for a particular metric like let's just go for the smallest package size because we're going to be doing messages and we want them to be tiny messages of course we do but if if the cost of that is that no one's going to then consume the api because they don't know how to do it or you have to write and maintain a client library for them and maybe you might just think you know what we'll just do a json thing because in this particular case we we may get thousand users doing it and it's not going to make much difference but but i think yeah it probably will change it almost certainly will change and it does keep getting better all the time the grpc gateway thing is interesting that as you mentioned proxies essentially doesn't it lets you do i think it spins up the grpc server and it spins up a json server and so depending on how you're deploying code that might not work too you know you might not be able to do things like that Um, I'm thinking of how App Engine used to work on in Google Cloud. It was a locked down kind of environment, so you weren't able to just open up any ports you want. It was very controlled. It's less so the case now, but there are definitely considerations like that too about deployment and things. But yeah, I think it's a it's a great one, and we should probably have another episode on it at some point, and we'll invite you back. Completely agree. Um, one last thing, uh, gRPC to actually like sort of move it away from a Google product. They actually renamed it to GRPC, Remote Procedural Call. So it's sort of a recursive acronym. Uh, right, right. Thing. Yeah. So the G stands for GRPC. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's great. That's a paradox. Yeah. That's a bit like how Go is written in Go. You know, the compiler is written in Go. <laughs> now. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't used to be. Uh, any other unpopular opinions? I guess I have a really short one, since this is, um, I guess I'm near the end of the podcast, and this part could also be cut out. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely going in now, Ben. Okay. Well, it's, it's very short, and there's not much to debate. London Gophers is the best Go meetup. Ooh, that is a good one. I mean, it is a great meetup. Are you an organizer, by the way? No. Okay, I might be, but that doesn't affect my opinion. <laughs> okay, interesting. 
Well, hopefully you uh, have uh, meetups in your local areas too. I mean, the London Gophers one now is online. So actually, you don't even have to be in London. Anyone from around the world can uh, join in. So, uh, And I, th- I think more and more of them are going online too. But it is a great meetup. I have to admit that it is, it is one of my favorites. Uh, Shaquille, have you got anything unpopular to say? So far, you've just been saying popular things. Yeah, I'd say updating Go versions is a terrible experience. I'd say it's not as terrible as other languages, for example, but the fact that you have to do a lot of things manually, go to the website, download it, delete the old one, and all of that, where we have a lot of tools, Go tools that do other things, I think that's kind of sad. Interesting. Uh, there is an installer which will just do it for you. It, it, it probably depends on how you installed it in the first place, I guess. Oh, I was talking more about updating versions. So you have to update, ins- download the latest versions installer from the website first mm-hmm. and delete, blow away your old installation. Or is there a new way to do it now? There might be, it? yeah. There's an installer. Yeah, there's an installer that you can just, well, you still have to download it. I'm sorry. I don't think we can solve that one for you. But yeah, it will do that work for you. So you might be in luck there. We might be able to solve that one for you. Cool. I will look more into it. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, spending this time with us. I think you've all got really great futures. Please stay in touch. Um, We'll see you on, hopefully online, and we'll see you in meetups speaking and yeah we look forward to kind of seeing how things progress um thanks so much well how about we have you on again next year and see where you are we can check in could be really cool thank you again uh, thank you to aditya shaquille and ben uh, we'll see you next time on go time next week on go time john calhoun is joined by ben johnson aaron Slashinger and Chris Brando to talk about regrets. Learning from your mistakes is a great way to advance as a developer, but you know what's even easier? Learning from somebody else's mistakes. So stay tuned for that one. It's a great episode. Thanks again to our guests this week for sharing their beginnings with us, to Matt for being a great host, to BMC for all of the beats, and to our sponsors for helping us do what we love to do. Shout out to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. That's all for now. We'll talk to you again next time. Oh, I almost forgot. People are always asking us, how can I support GoTime? Well, if you haven't written a raving five-star review on Apple Podcasts yet, that's one easy way to pitch in. It takes about 30 seconds, no need to write a book or anything, and believe it or not, those reviews really do have an impact for new people finding the show. Okay, we appreciate that. I'm done for real this time.
you could easily end up in a kind of arms race against other people. And I never find that to be particularly enjoyable. So I think, yeah, being different is the way. I like to say, think different. <laughs> Did you just make that up? That one before. It just came to me, yeah. It's just you made that up. Wow. Yeah. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. I was actually, I did year 15, I think, with your skills, and I would assume your lo- relatively low expenses. There's actually no better time to bootstrap one of your side projects into an income producing endeavor. That's really? what I would suggest versus trying to just like beat the streets for an internship. Yeah, man. It's a great time. Well, the projects I'm working on, like, actually, you know what? I'll share. It's actually pretty interesting. So, you know, because of COVID, there's like group addiction therapy. It's not happening. You can't do it on a Zoom call because it's sort of a, I guess, from what I've heard, it feels simulated and artificial. So what I'm doing is uh, me and a few other people, we're building a platform. It's not really income generating. So like what you said, Jared, uh, Mm -hmm. it won't do that, but it's sort of like for social good. It's sort of a platform where you can do group counseling and random one-on-one like conversations with other addicts. So you can, you know, talk out your problem. That's how it happens in like real life. And, you know, that's actually my current project what I'm working on right now. And yeah, I've been reaching out and it's going really great. But hopefully in the future, once we move back from remote to in-person, it can still be something that can be used. And at that point, it could be turned into something revenue generating. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, but I love that you're solving a real problem. That's a key thing. Like yeah. it's, We can imagine cool tech and we want, we want to build it. Sometimes the text, the, the boring bit and the problem that you're solving and solving that problem is the valuable bit. So I think, yeah, solving a real problem is a great little thing, a great insight that you're doing it already. Awesome. What's it called? Is it out there? Uh, no, we're prototyping right now, but I'm with an organization. It's called Coding Tomorrow. We teach fifth graders how to write Python, and that's got to be the most painful thing I've ever done in my life. We did that and like, you know, we're doing that as a group now to like sort of try to get that out there, prototype it. Well, if you think fifth graders are bad, try fourth graders <laughs> or third. How grade. old are you in fifth grade? And we don't have the same. Ten. Oh, 10. I don't know. Is it 10 or 11? I don't know. My sister's know. in fifth grade, so I should know, but. How old is your sister? Uh, she's, I think 10 or 11. I'm really bad at this. 10 or 11. Just <laughs> off, off by one error. That's also yeah. very common. Don't worry. Right. You know, very specific. Round it up like Benjamin does. <laughs> I'm yeah. big for an engineer. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that story might go in. Are you still recording your audio? Yeah. Yeah. We may snip that in. Awesome. Do yeah. it. Snip it in. Yeah. Yeah, but to snip that in, we're going to have to snip out most of the stuff Matt said earlier. So. That's the way it should be. We'll just have to do what we want. 